online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. A view from the vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because life's too short for boring wine. There are certain wines, we've touched upon these in terms of the value thing, uh, wines we were talking about before, which demonstrate exceptional value for money and they are appropriate for people. They've embraced that style. As you move up through the scale of, of cost, you run into, there's a tyranny in label uh, in wine uh, where you have to pay for the paper on the front um, or the, more specifically the ink and what the ink says. And that's that's no good. You can only drink the liquid, right? So I think the middle ground is really fertile. So so between 10 and 20 pounds for a sourcing good wine as a consumer, that's the place. Because if you go much beyond that, you're not talking about the cost of production. You're not, you're not. You're talking about scarcity and reputation. And that's not always about the juice inside the, the, the bottle. Good or stuff with reputation is is very, very expensive. Cheap stuff is dreadful. So you can see there's a problem, that the label has created a problem. Here at Virgin Wines, we believe that life's too short for boring wine, which is why we search the world for the most exciting independent winemakers and use thousands of our customer ratings to shape our range of premium quality exclusive wines. Head to virginwines.co.uk and start your wine journey with us today. Handpicked by us, loved by you. Today on Food FM, I'm excited to be joined by Andrew Baker, Buying Director at Virgin Wines. When it comes to wine, Andrew has done it all. He started his wine career in Oddburns almost 30 years ago and has since then studied wine, made wine, bought and sold wine, and along the way he has drunk lots and lots of the stuff. What Andrew doesn't know about wine is probably not worth knowing. I'm so looking forward to talking to Andrew about his career in wine and speaking to him about all of his top wine tips. Welcome, Andrew. Nice to have you here today with us on Food FM. Nice to be here. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit more about how you started in wine, about how you landed your, your first job in wine and whether wine was always a passion and a hobby that turned into a career or, or how it all came about. It, it didn't come about by design, put it that way. Um, it, it, it was very much a circumstantial thing. I, I think in the early 90s, there was there was a, a recession and there weren't a lot of jobs around and there there were, there, were, there were actually a lot of graduates who because of the sort of the lack of jobs just were very practical about where they went to work you know I was I was living at university I was living up in Inverness and um, there was an odd bin shop there and I got a job there just for money not not for any real interest in the subject but Oddbins at that time was a really unique uh, place to work. It was it was absolutely unique because, well, for a number of reasons. The graduate reason is one of them. There were a lot of um, uh, people not doing exactly what they were perhaps trained for, but uh, um, a lot of bright people, young bright people, who went into went to work for Oddbins and and of course other people as well. But Oddbins was particularly exciting. It was a magnet for those people because of the I suppose because of um, the glamour of the product. I just wanted to earn some money, really. But uh, within a matter of months, uh, I was really immersed in the whole thing, massively immersed in it. You know, and we, the the people that worked for Oddbins in that period and before and 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 afterwards for some time were completely devoted to the company, completely devoted to wine, and um, it was all about the adventure, the adventures that could be had within that. So it was a it's a very odd community and a very good one. You know, I mean, it was. It was it, it was great. We, we learned an awful lot, and I did l- literally spend all of my money on wine. 
all of it. We used to uh, buy outrageously expensive wine with precious little uh, purse, you know. And then my career path was really, because after leaving Ogden's, I worked in, in uh, Ogden's all over the country, but and that was fabulous. The other thing to say about Ogden's is that the wine selection was, um, at that time, they're owned by Seagram's, and they, they, they flushed their own brands through Oddbins to make money, although Oddbins didn't make money. So there was no real pressure on the buyers to, to be commercially sound. Um, they wouldn't like me saying that, but they did buy some fantastic <laughs> wine as a result of it because nobody was breathing down their necks going, you've got to squeeze an extra 30 pence a bottle out of this. So it was it was really great in that respect as well. So, the, um, so, so I, I, after that, I, I, I went to uh, Plumpton College at the, the first wine course in the country. And I spent a couple of years there. We were supposed to be doing three years, but there was a bit of a gap, a forced gap. We didn't, it wasn't, we didn't elect to do it. And I just disappeared into the trade because my, my aspiration was to do winemaking, really. And we trained to do that. Uh, it was it was very much hand-to-mouth in those days. I'm sure it's much more slick. But it was very practical. You know, you work in a vineyard. We worked in the vineyards and we worked um, in the winery. We built the winery. And so it was very practical. So we, we in the meantime, we flitted off. You know, uh, in between term times, we flitted off to do winemaking work wherever we could. And in fact, I went on to do uh, vintages a number of different countries. And I would always go back to to earn money to fund the next vintage in the hope of getting the right job. Um, and that's where I got um, the job at Virgin Wines. That is a fantastic <laughs> summary of your introduction to wine. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience making wine. I understand you've made wine in South Africa and in New Zealand, and you've also worked in the in the US as well. And um, what, what was your experience doing the, the, the vintages out in South Africa and New Zealand? And, and how did you find the, the work culture uh, in wine when you were in the US? I'd start off by saying that, you know, there's no substitute for that, for actually going and getting your hands dirty. Um, the second thing about that is that it's, it's, it's extremely hard work. It's extremely hard graft. And I would say to my children when they're old enough to, to go and do it, because it's it's one of those things that, you know, everyone used to go and live on a kibbutz, didn't they? But, you know, or do a ski season or whatever. But I think it's, it's, it's such a valuable thing to do to go and do something which is agricultural and hard work and very, very bonding an experience which is really it's so much about meeting people i mean i'd actually met my wife doing um vintage in oregon she was also doing a vintage there so it's, a, it's an international crew uh you always an international crew uh people from all different backgrounds and it's just a wonderful kind of melting pot like that so it, it's something that i would love my own children to do and i would encourage anyone to do i would encourage people to do it at any stage in life as well when they can actually do that because it's 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 a it's a learning experience it's the, the hard graft is part of the the nightmarishness of some of it is actually the bit that's bonding if that makes sense it's not quite national service uh, but it, but it is really bonding as an experience and we're still friends with people all over the world who we shared that experience with so it, it's a really great thing to do so you've worked on, you know, both in, in the vineyard and doing all the laborious kind of work, um, as well as working on the business sides, selling wine, buying wine. What do you think has been the biggest challenge that you faced during your career working in the wine industry? It's a good question. I mean, I think from the production side, the challenges remain the same. Well, I, well, they, they broadly remain the same. You know, you, you could because you fight uh, things that Mother Nature brings that, that are undesirable, which you can't 
which you can't uh, you can't change those things but you can uh, you work as well as you can with them those things have been in place since the dawn of time right but um i started a, an estate a very very small estate in the south of france with one of my friends from from plumpton college in in 2009 and the weather has been really uh, unpredictable since then. That's, that's the word I'd use. It's been unpredictable. Um, there's been, there have been lots of extremes, not just heat, but cold and, and, and uh, all sorts of other adverse stuff. There's a lot of disease down there, which, which largely goes undocumented. And it is very, very challenging to produce a crop every year there that is consistent. Uh, it's just, it's very hard work doing that. I mean, it's more for my partner than myself, but um, I get down there when I can, but production has its, its own very unique set of challenges always. But that's what makes it interesting with my other hat on, the UK wine trade hat on. That also is a changing, there's a changing, a constantly changing environment. Obviously, the last two years have been massively challenging. They've been massively rewarding in certain respects as well, but they've been, they've been really, really challenging. I mean, but I think if I had to pick one, um, the tran- transition from being somebody who was uh, much more on the production side, much my mind was much more orientated. Um, I've been really helped by working at a place like Virgin, where all of that information is it's not just available to us as buyers, but it is it's really obvious that you have to use it. It's and you know it's quite fascinating for me because it, it, we get so much feedback, and, and twenty years worth of feedback is a lot. And what evolves is a stylistic, a wine, a stylistic wine spectrum, not a, a bunch of labels which you have to tick to buy. Um, it, it, because the, the the great thing is that um, Virgin uses style categories. You use style categories to, to group wines together, and, and that's not new. But the whole the whole range is informed by the ratings. It's genuinely something which we take and we read every week and in, in some detail and. And that informs every decision we make from from the wines we don't carry anymore to the wines we blend up when we and, and make when we're in cellars in, in other countries. So that so that I've been really helped by that, you know, but certainly at the start, it would be challenge. But creation of really good wine is always a challenge. And I think that's what keeps us keeps us keeps us invigorated. You know, I wonder how technology and advances in looking at data have have also helped you and, and, and aided looking at those stylistic preferences and being able to deliver to your your customers, you know, wines that are, are you see that, are, that they enjoy more? Yes, I mean, it's literally that. I mean, the appropriateness is simply a measure of enjoyment and actually the actual production of wine and, 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 the, and the, the blending of wine, which is an, an, an amazing tool that's available to us because it, it, it involves a little bit of voodoo. So, you know, two plus two virtually never equals four in, in when, you, when, you're, when you're blending wine together. It, it does require a little bit of experience, but you can always be surprised as well, no matter what your experience. So that's kind of good fun, that, um, to see, see what eventuates, you know, and endless tinkering and playing around. But certainly to, to have customers will actually drink wine, their preferences expressed very clearly, both as individuals and as groups, is really helpful. Angie, I'm really keen to delve into your expertise a bit more now to find out a bit more about wine trends, some wine tips, 
how to choose great wine. The first thing I wanted to ask you about is the pandemic. We can't avoid discussing this and its impact it's had um, on wine. But what I'd like to find out from you is what you've noticed more in terms of wine buying trends since the pandemic. What are people stocking up more on? Are people spending more money or or, or less money? Are they more driven by quality or or bulk? Uh, What have you found? I think the pandemic was is it's a great challenge for everybody in industry and of course in in society but we i mean we had some very very um shaky moments back in march 20 where we thought we we're going to have to shut the door for safety reasons and and we've we've done like a, like every other responsible kind of commercial entity we've done everything we can to protect everyone and um that that's been a great success and fortunately we did manage to keep the door open so you, you know since then our consumer and in fact we've we've had we've had a wealth of um, new customers coming up uh, to the door obviously because there's been a, a great boost in online um, activity um, across all sectors, but but so, so we've 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 felt the benefit of that. So I think people have over this period. I think they've had time to be more attentive, more attentive to you know what they select in terms of wine uh, and and kind of uh, you know more attentive, having more time to look at it, and also more responsive. So the things that we've sent to people, suggestions that we've sent to people, the response has been really fantastic on, on that on that front. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. A view from the vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because life's too short for boring wine. I wanted to ask you about three underrated wines that you have in your portfolio. Lots of people get stuck in a rut, choose the same wines or from the same regions all the time. Do you have three particular wines that, that, that you have that, that excite you that might not be as well known, but people should start drinking? Yeah, I mean, it's, I've probably got more than three. I mean, the, 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 there's still an issue in the UK wine trade that uh, buyers and journalists get very, very bored uh, very easily. And we'll, so they're always looking for new stuff. We've got a relatively adventurous um, customer base because we promote that. We don't, we don't promote what big brands would promote, which is drinking their brands every day, which, which in itself is kind of, kind of stasis. So that stylistic spectrum really helps us um, in that respect as well, because we can buy anything we like if we can, it can be justified and, and it can always, always be justified because we always have need for new and evolution and, and all of those things. The, the, the marketing, the old marketing trope about giving people what they want, that's great. The question to, to because you should definitely do that, but the question for those people who ask that is um, what will they want in three years' time or five years' time or ten years' time? That is That expresses evolution and that's why we should never sit on our hands and just offer people what they want. The first one is dry, dry German wines. Now, to pay, to get a decent bottle, you have to pay oh, as little as 12, 14 pounds. These are exceptional wines. And if you, until very recently, the Grosse Gewach wines, which are, which are from certain sites and are dry German Rieslings, dry German Rieslings actually have some residual sugar left in them um, because this, the acidity is so searing, um, it has to be balanced out, as, as is the, the, the German wine model, I guess, wine production model. But these, these wines are underpinned by Riesling acidity and uh, they are pin bright. They're, 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 they've got such great purity and an expression of where they're from um, within the context of just one grape type. And they're just massively intense. I mean, at the, 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 
the top level and you shouldn't have to pay more than about 60 pounds a bottle for something that really truly world class um the intensity of these wines you have to i, I decant them well depending on mm-hmm. what the producer is who, who the producer is i decant them for 48 uh, 24 hours because they just they just um bloom you know and but the, the intensity of flavor is is quite addictive um, so I, I, they are still, I, you know, the wine trade's been banging on about German recently for a long time. The damage having been done uh, many, many decades, so decades ago, many years ago, with cheap sweet stuff. Uh, but the dry German wines are quite exceptional, I think, in in terms of world. They're on a world stage, and I think people are recognising that now. Prices are going up on the on these wines; they're becoming much more difficult to get. So get them while you can. Dry German Riesling, and and they're, and they're also fantastic with food. I think uh, extraordinary, I, I, but they're extraordinary wines in every way. But but so speaking of which, I mean, Beausoleil is the next one. Obviously, Beausoleil has a history as well, which you know, Beausoleil Nouveau and all that sort of thing, and that's probably how most people know it. But the 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 the, the wines of Beausoleil, and and in fact, <clears throat> the red wines of the Loire, as you know, Gamay, Gamay and Cafron, these are just the grapes are just fabulous grapes. They they make beautiful, fresh, elegant wines. When they're done correctly. And wines that are, are very enjoyable in the summer, I think. Wines that you can Fantastic. serve um, a little bit cooler and, yeah. yeah, don't feel so heavy on the palate. Um, that, yeah, definitely, exactly definitely right. my go-tos for summer. And I think as much as I like to self-flagellate with acid, um, <laughs> that's an expression I can use, um, <laughs> I, that, I think there's if you look at the wine trade at large, they'll be drinking stuff which is less heavily oaked. In terms of red, less heavily oaked, lighter, uh, just more jolly, more pretty, uh, a lot lighter in general. The third wine I'd pick out, um, it, it shouldn't be a, a surprise, to you, I'm sure it won't be. It's it's massively under um, underpriced, and it is something that is a is a wine trade secret. Are you going for sherry? Yes, of course, of course. Oh, excellent. I mean, I think, I mean, it, it, I think you know, it's it's we, we we joke about these things in the wine trade and say that you can't really respect to the wine professional if they don't like sherry, and I I, I do harbour that um, that grudge, I'm afraid, but because it is, it is an incredible wine, um, extraordinary wine, and that mostly I drink on the driest, drier end of that, of course. But there's something really massively addictive about the style of sherry. That that um, it's extremely complex wine, but again, it can be salty, it, it can be super fresh, it can be it, it can be many things, sherry. But it, what it is not is expensive. I wholeheartedly agree with you on that. The 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 first thing that I wrote on my list um, to have after I was pregnant was a, a plate of hamon with a nice uh, cool glass of, of fino sherry. Um, I was yes, just no. I was just craving that combo <laughs> the whole way through my pregnancy. Um, and and I yes. and I've also done the trip down to uh, San Luca and to Jerez, and it is just a fantastic place to visit. And it's awesome. the, really the, the sherry bars um, sort of line the streets, and you can go in pay you know a euro 50 for a sherry plate of um, almonds or pageant peppers or anchovies and and just watch the world go by it is uh, yeah a glorious uh, trip to do another uh, question i wanted to ask you about is rosé it's heated up now in in the uk and people are flocking uh, to buy rosé do you think rosé's popularity is ever going to fade firstly and secondly what are your favorite rosés for the summer are they uh, do you have any sort of un- more unusual styles of rosé 
in your fridge? I think, um, firstly, the answer is no. Um, I don't think it will dim. It's a considerable part of the marketplace now. Um, it's 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 pretty versatile drink as well. I, you know, I, 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 and it's not. Um, it's 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 far less seasonalised than it used to be. Uh, it, I I don't think there's a particular gender bias we see with, with rosé. And obviously, we do we do. We, we do blush, US blush styles, uh, but they're not the most popular wines we do. They t- that tends to be the, in the drier style. So it, many years ago, I was working with a fellow in the side of France and he had some quite early... Sanso was pretty much a junk grape down there. They didn't, you know, it, it, it could yield pretty well and, you know, big berries and all that sort of thing. Um, so it lent itself quite well to producing sort of light well, you could just light red with it, obviously, but it, nobody had really discovered the red, the 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 the, the greatness of red varietal Sanso down there. So it was used in rosés and, and that sort of thing, but it wasn't valued. And uh, there was a fellow down there who had some early pick Sanso, and I tasted it, and I went, he didn't know what to do with it. And I said, that is that's amazing, we need that, and and that that together with early pick, relatively early harvested Grenache, and we made a style which I I wanted to make in the the color. To, to reflect the colour of the Provence. Now, obviously, that is ubiquitous now. So those 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 kind of beautifully covered coloured roses are ubiquitous now. But in the, in in the style I described, Virgin, we put that out there, and we still we still list it now. That exact wine now, and we've got loads of others now. But um, it proved to be a massively popular, and and it's it, it's so it's so easy to drink, and I think it should look rosé to me should look beautiful. You know the it should have a, that that beautiful colour about it, and it should look. It should make you want to drink it just looking at it. And, and, and I'm, I'm wholeheartedly in favour of that. And some people, you know, there, there is some reaction to this. Some people like the big old heavy phenolic roses from um, uh, yesteryear, but uh, I, I personally, I didn't like them. And our consumer really prefers this lighter, brighter, uh, juicier style. And I think it's a, I think it's a great style. I don't think it's going to fade away. I think one of the things people are always unsure about is how much money they need to spend in order to get a good quality wine. Now, I know there's certain things that have to go into, into the, the, the mix that you have to spend on wine, like taxes, you know, the costs of the labour and the grapes and the production. And then obviously there's a part of it, which is marketing. And then, you know, then there's the brand element um, of the wine, which can make a wine much more expensive or much less expensive. But what I wanted to ask you about is what do you think is the sort of benchmark or or the the amount that you need to spend in order to get a good quality wine? There are quite a number of things to say about this. I think, I mean, I'll try and keep it short. The, the the notion of good quality wine is actually that actually illustrates it shows a problem because wine really shouldn't have an absolute quality rating it's about it's about enjoyment of the wine so so if if you were to give a consumer a customer a wine you you as a trade expert was to say this is really great great quality and they they, they will tend to to agree with you if you're there but whilst at the same time not enjoying it so it's it's like giving wine an absolute quality rating as robert parker has done and so many people have aped over the years because it's so easy to understand those things are misleading those those scales are misleading because wine does not have an quality rating it's wine is purely it's the circumstance in which an individual drinks it that gives it its value if that makes sense so 
you know, I, I, traveling with tradespeople, you know, uh, all over the place. And so I think, so to, to, to try and answer the question, you can, you would, it, as, a, as a customer, somebody who drinks wine, what you want to do is buy a bottle of wine that you're going to enjoy. So the quality is, that quality is specific to you. Giving a wine an absolute quality rating is absolutely misleading. It's, it's totally misleading to the consumer. But I think there's also the, 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 this, the other part of it, which you referenced, which is as you cut cost, you'll come to a point where there's a very steep drop off in how good that product is. Processing and it's about unit cost and is not really driven at all by what will appear in the bottle at the other end. So there is absolutely a a point beyond which we must not go um, in terms of buying. There are, there are certain wine styles, and we've touched upon these <clears throat> in terms of the value things, uh, uh, wines we were talking about before, which demonstrate exceptional value for money, and they are appropriate for people. They've embraced that style. As you move up through the scale of, of cost, you run into confusing things like scarcity and, and label, of course. There's a tyranny in label uh, in wine uh, where you have to pay for the paper on the front um, or the, more specifically the ink and what the ink says. And um, that's, that's no good. You can only drink the liquid, right? So I think the middle ground is really fertile. So, so between 10 and 20 pounds is a massively fertile place to be. From for sourcing good wine as a consumer, really, really, that that that's the place. Because if you go much beyond that, you're not talking about the cost of production. You're not, you're not. You're talking about scarcity and reputation, and that's not always about the juice inside the the, the bottle. But it is it is complicated, and it's really it's confusing to the consumer for reasons they may not know all, all about these reasons. But you know, if you buy a bottle of Chardonnay, and people know Chardonnay, they might not know, you know, Lawrence Ferro that makes Pego. They might not know any producer of Chateauneuf de Pat, but they know Chateauneuf. They go into a supermarket and buy one for seven pounds. Now I know what that wine is, and and it is the 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 if you pardon the pun, it's the bottom of the barrel. It's absolutely appalling wine. It's really really bad, and you could spend probably a third of the cost of that bottle on a decent wine from the south of from the Languedoc or Roussillon, and it would be much more enjoyable. So so that so paying for labels is is well, you can't taste them. So. I would encourage people to avoid those things. And actually, that's about that's probably about um, being more adventurous. So not going with Chateauneuf de Pat, because good Chateauneuf de Pat or stuff with reputation is is very, very expensive. Cheap stuff is dreadful. So you can see there's a problem that the label has created a problem. There are many myths we hear about wine, how it's made, how to store it. Also, what wines give you a worse hangover. What is the biggest myth that you repeatedly hear about wine or a type of wine? I I really love the one, which is um, always accompanied by a little tap on the nose and normally by a said by a bloke in his mid 60s but um it's um they keep the best for themselves which implies some sort of insider knowledge and it is just simply not true and it could be said of any region i mean europe is the really good one but it it, it almost always is accompanied by a, that person having done a trip to a certain place and he'll come back and say you know they keep the best wines for themselves uh, and tap. i love that one it's quite amusing myths in wine are, 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 are they, they, they are many many 
many myths in wine, but I think one of the, the most important ones is what I referenced before about the label. It, you know, this this whole notion that estate wines are, or what it says on the label, it uh, delivers quality is a very dangerous, it's not entirely a myth. It's not entirely a myth because obviously if you know a producer and you know a vintage and you know a vineyard or, 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 or the area where the wine came from, then you, know, then you know that wine is really good for you. There's an awful lot of value generation which is not accompanied by wine quality in labeling. So the Chateauneuf example, you know, people are trading this stuff. They're trading labels and they are the, the price you have to pay more money for wine of equivalent quality because of the label. And and of course, the people that do that know exactly that the consumer is using that as a framework to buy the wine in the first place. So Chateau of the Bat, great wine. I'll have one of them. That still happens today. So I, I think that's a, it's close to something which um, people should, more people should know about. Angie, thank you. It's been so interesting hearing about all your insights um, into wine. And we're actually recording this quite uh, early in the day. And I'm sure you've got a long day of work ahead of you. And I wanted to finally ask you after a long day at work, which today might be, what do you like to head into the fridge and open or not fridge or set, head down to the cellar and open? Uh, I can't always open those those uh, vicious dry Rieslings that I was talking about, the Germans. <laughs> I can't do that every day. Um, I'd soon run out of money. Um, I can do things like uh, vermouth and tonic is, is great. Uh, we get vermouths. We're buying vermouths from all over the world now. Really good. So why vermouth and tonic? I, I like that a lot. Um, Lachitana, of course, Mantania, uh, that's, uh, and, and any other dry sherry is probably my favourite. And believe it or not, I've actually been doing quite a lot of, uh, if we call it fake booze, uh, non-alcoholic gin. And I've been playing with that a lot over the last year. And with some pretty good results, actually. And uh, I shouldn't really be doing that, but we do sell it. So, uh, I, but I do enjoy it. I mean, I, I also gin and tonic. We we sell um, many many different gins, and that's that's really a bit of a journey as well, because you know there's many different tonics, there's many different um, bitters, there's loads of ways you can play with gin. They're quite fun, and it, it makes a after work. That's a, that's a good way to sign off work with a gin and tonic. Excellent. Thank you, Andrew, so much for sharing all about your career in wine. You've had such a colourful and broad experience. I'm particularly in awe of your time working in the vineyards, and we've been ever so lucky to hear all of your top tips. Thank you again, Andrew, and thank you for tuning in to A View from a Vineyard. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. A View from the Vineyard, with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because... Life's too short for boring wine. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.